This evening's, this evening's reading is Revelation chapter 8, which can be found on page 1921 of the Church Bibles. Is that open the seven hearing? All right. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all the saints, on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, by the other three angels. This is the word of the Lord. I think we definitely need to pray. <laughs> Father, as we come to this word, uh, as, uh, particularly this book, we pray that we would still uh, be blessed by its reading. We thank you that Sarah's read it out and we've heard these words and we pray that you would give us some encouragement. May we hear your truths, not the ones I think of, uh, but that people here would hear the things that you need them to hear. You want them to hear because you love them. Amen. Without a walk away, right? <laughs> um, I, I just loved what we were singing there. You're a good, good father, and I just want to hold on to that thought because I think it's important to cling on to who we are. I think it's important to talk about that. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the morning when Jesus was being tested by Satan in the desert. It's really important, and just to help you remember how important it can be, here's one of my favourite stories. Uh, in Hilaire Belloc's The Four Men. Uh, four travellers crossing Sussex are debating 
uh, the origin or the county of origin used this. You say right that they were not Sussex horses. I won't do the accent. You say right they were not Sussex horses, for there are only two things in Sussex which Sussex deigns to give its name to. The first is the spaniel, and the second is the sheep. Note you, many kingdoms and counties and lands are prodigal of their names, because their names are of little account and in no way sacred, so that one will give its name to a cheese and another to a horse and another to some kind of ironwork or other and another to clotted cream or to butter and another to something ridiculous as to a cat with no tail. But it is not so with Sussex, for our name is not a name to be used like a label and tied onto common things. Seeing that we were the first place to be created when the world was made, and here, and we shall certainly be the last to remain, regal and at ease, when all the rest is very miserably perishing on the day of judgment by a horrible great rain of fire from heaven, which will fall, if I am not mistaken, upon the whole earth and strike all round the edges of the county, consuming Tunbridge and Appledore, but not Rye, and Hawley and Ockley and Hazelmere and very certainly Petersfield and Havant. And <laughs> there shall be not one hair of the head of Sussex shall be singed. It has been so ordained from the beginning, and that in spite of Burwash and those who dwell therein. You see, well, it's one of my favorite bits of literature. Now, if you grew up like I did with Strong's Tales of Sussex, then this is a very appealing thing, and it, it adds to your identity. It reminds you of something. It could even tell you a lie. It might, it might even be not telling the truth. This might not be true. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm go I grew up with the idea that it was, and my ancestors were not far from here, so there we go. But it's important to, think, to hold on to that idea of ide identity and how it can shape the way one looks at things and how important it can be, because when we look at a passage like this, we absolutely need to hold on to our identity. We absolutely need to be sure that we're among those saints because it's, an empower, it's a powerful and frightening uh, chapter. Let's have a quick look then. Um, uh, let's begin with, so if you've got a Bible open in front of you, that was a very good habit and I uh, fully commend you for doing so. Um, I wonder though, when was the first time uh, you caught your breath? When something made you stop and actually pause and go, what on earth was that? I don't know whether you were watching something, you might have even been reading something, uh, but it's important to say it begins with such a pause that the, the lamb opens the seventh seal and there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. What a strange idea. What, what is that about? And when we stop and we take in a, a, a sharp intake of breath like that, surely it's about this sort of, well, it could be a number of things here, but normally for us it's this sort of, what's going to happen next? And it's as though heaven is waiting to see what will happen next. The six seals have been opened, the seventh is opened, and actually what there is, is there's a pause. There's a pause, there's this sense of, um, of perhaps it's the calm, uh, heaven senses the calm before the storm uh, coming before after it. Perhaps it's, it's to allow space for the ministry of the saints around the altar, that in Jewish a tradition in Jewish worship, everything happens in silence. There are certain things that happen in silence during, during the ritual. Or perhaps 
It's even harking back, thinking about what's coming, it's even harking back to that primeval silence over creation. But whatever it is, there's this pause. And it's intriguing that it's half an hour, but it's important that suddenly there's space. There's a little bit of space in heaven for people to reflect on about on what's about this continuation. We move from seals to trumpets, but we'll get to those in a moment because what we have in front of us is these seven angels standing before God, and they have these seven trumpets. And before they act, this other angel has a golden censer. It's very difficult scene to imagine. The throne room seems quite crowded, uh, and he's given this incense to offer uh, along with the prayers of the saints. And then the judgment comes. Verse 5, the angels take, takes the censer. It's filled with fire from the altar, hurled to the earth. And then judgment begins with, at this stage, just four trumpets. There's a 4-3 pattern, not time, and not, that's not a musical annotation, but there's a 4-3 pattern to the bowls, uh, the trumpets, and the seals. That the, the four of them imply something happening in the immediacy, and the second three uh, often have a different focus. So we're just going to focus on those first four uh, this evening and, and hope and find uh, something encouraging in there. Well, let's have a look. We see these judgments. Uh, one of the things I picked up in policing was now and again, certain villains have a little calling card. It might be the way that they gain access to a building or a vehicle. Uh, it might be what they leave on their way out. But it's possible to sort of pin down certain people by the way they do things. And we all know that. But there's something characteristic about, there's a character sort of attached to that, isn't there? That you can be able to say, oh yeah, that was so-and-so because their coffee cup was dirty or whatever. God's judgment is a mark of his character. And it's interesting that there are, in some senses, these judgments that are released on, on, on the world reflect very closely uh, judgments that we see in the ten plagues of Egypt. They're not exact, but the character is still there. They're not precisely the same. They don't mirror it in any particular order, but it's the same sorts of things. And in doing so, we see that it's the same sort of God who is at work. It is the same God. And he's done this to demonstrate, as he did in the Exodus story, what his heart is. He wants to release these people. It's his character that's on display. And what he's doing is, in the Exodus, he's releasing people by overthrowing the Egyptian gods. And we talked about that in September when we looked at this. But it's important to recognize that God is, again, overthrowing the things uh, that have bound people up. His judgment is on the things uh, that are crunch, uh, that are hold on to them. And let's have a quick look and see what I mean. So we, we have hail and fire, the first trumpet, hail and fire, signs of divine uh, judgment. I did have a picture of a car that had its in, in dangerous things. But these hailstones have, have come and there's um, fire mixed with blood. It's all very bad. And a third of the earth is burned and third of the trees, the earth is being raised and leveled to the ground. I don't know if you've ever sort of read in history about scorched earth policies by invading countries. Or, I mean, the Romans were at it, and it was, it was a policy in the sort of the mid-20th century. A sense of just leveling things to the ground. That is to be no more. Nothing more will come from that. 
earth. There's this judgment on the earth. And then we see the second trumpet affects the sea. Something like a huge mountain. Again, that's an important image from the Old Testament. A blaze, a mountain ablaze, uh, thrown into the sea. And then a third of the sea again from Exodus. A third of the sea turns into blood. The living creatures in the sea and a third of the ships uh, were destroyed. Now, this is the sort of thing that might have resonated with John's readers particularly strongly. If we take an early date for Revelation, say the 80s or 90s AD, then uh, Vesuvius uh, was in 79. It's probably still in living memory. Vesuvius is this great mountain, but it's an image of God's judgment upon them, just as earthquakes were important to the cities to the letters uh, that the letters were written to in the earlier chapters. The earthquakes resonated about what God was doing. And that's important to hold on to. Then this third, trump, uh, this third trumpet uh, is about the water in the land. The rivers, the streams, the wells, the springs. All of those sorts of things that have become bitter through this, through this wormwood. It was very tempting. I have to say it was very tempting, but I'm not going to go there, to talk about how Chernobyl is the Russian word for absinthe, which is the wormwood to which the Greek refers, and the bitterness of the waters around Russia after the Chernobyl disaster. But I'm not going to talk about that. The important thing about water was that it's something that only God could sort out. In the Old Testament, when the waters of Mara were bitter, it took God to sort them out. It was important. Water also implies, you know, is, is an implication for everybody. But this judgment is now falling kind of indiscriminately, and it's reminding people, many people die. It's something that only God can deal with. It would resonate with these stories of their time in the wilderness where God brought them living fresh water. And I think that's important to hold on to as well. As our guiding lights in a, in a part of the world that was dependent upon navigation by the stars, would have been important. The things that guide us, the things that lead us, but also, uh, you know, and signs of impending judgment. These pictures that John is seeing are about everything being unraveled and falling apart, just as that scroll was being rolled up in the last couple of chapters. And we remember, if we were looking at the um, story of Jonah, that Assyria had experienced an eclipse that had set the city on tremendous tender hooks about what was going to happen to them. What God was going, what was God going to do with the city of Nineveh and, the, and the, uh, an eclipse just before Jonah comes is a really important factor. It, it brings people to mind. If God is at work. It's a crazy and frightening part of, of the Bible. It's very difficult to make any sense of it. It would be tempting, as I've already alluded, to start saying, well, that was that event there and that was that event there. And actually, perhaps the reality is that all the things we read about are part of this unraveling. We talked about that before, about how this judgment is an ongoing thing that's handing over. Remember, Jesus told us, you know, there will be all of these things, wars and, and famines and disasters and earthquakes, but the end is yet to come. And so it's important just to hold those things together and say, well, what... What can we make of that? How, how, how is this book going to be a blessing to us? How are these words actually a blessing? Let's, let's think about it. John's readers, Ian Paul writes that John's readers lived in a violent, chaotic, and frightening world 
in which the terrifying events they saw around them were interpreted as portents of disaster. John's account of the first four trumpets affects a transformation in their understanding of what they see around them. And what it says is it's not random. There's a pattern. It's not chaos. It's God at work. It feels like chaos because he's unleashing chaos. He's allowing chaos to occur as part of his judgment. But it's not that God has lost control. It's part of his, it's part of his plan. It's not his will for the We talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? It's not his will for the world he loves. But he has a will for the world he loves. And that's to rescue and restore it. And this is part of that. So it's important to hold on to that. But the suggestion and a reminder from John's writing here is that there is a plan and it is under control. After all, it's the Lamb who opens the seals. It's the angels who are under God's sovereign power who, who blow the trumpets. There's a pattern here. There's something happening which is not just point to it all. It's going somewhere. And I think sometimes that's a message that we need to hear. I don't want to use the B word or any other, you know, <laughs> but the world around us is chaotic and very difficult to understand at the moment. There's a pattern. Jesus talked about these things, that people would fall out with one another, that nations would fall out. There would be earthquakes and wars and famines. But it's part of what's unraveling. It's part of God allowing these things to happen, to giving them over as we talk about, as Paul writes in Romans 1, about giving them over to the things that they've chosen instead. The other thing it tells us a little bit is that it's under control and it's limited. Not only is, is there a half hour, which is an incomplete, that's what puzzles me, it's an incomplete unit of time. It's not like, <laughs> it, it, it suggests that it's, not fulfilled yet, that it's there's time left, that it's, it's there, that pause is to remind us that there's time to repent. And I suppose the argument to help build up that is it's the thirds of things that are destroyed, not all of things that are destroyed. That God is unleashing, that, that this is being unleashed on creation, um, but it's not total. And that it's actually the Lamb who opens the seventh seal in order to usher in God's judgment, part of the response of the saints in the previous two chapters. In chapter 6, how long, O sovereign, chapter 6, verse 10, the saints under the altar, so that's where we are in the throne room, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? Till you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And that's a really important point. I think that's quite a difficult one to hold on to. But this angel in chapter in verses three to five, this angel is collecting their prayers and mixing them with the incense and then pouring them out. Their cries for justice, their complaints to God about the hurts they've suffered. Their anguish has been heard. And I think that's actually the most important bit in this chapter for me, is that the things, that these things haven't been lost. That somehow 
their prayers, these, these saints' prayers, have been drawn on and taken and, set, and treated as important because these are God's children, just like he did in Exodus. I have heard the cry of my people. I will go to them. And he brought his judgment. And he, this picture is about him bringing judgment again, and part of it is in response to the cries of his people. The hands up here, who has ever, well, you don't have to, the hands up whoever here has cried out in anguish to God. Just me. No, no, no. Thank good. Good. This is good news. He hears us. He hears us. They're not lost. Those words are held onto. They don't evaporate into nothing. They're there. He's taken them seriously. He's taken your hurts seriously. He's taken those insults that you've borne. He's taken the jobs you've been passed over for, the things that people have said. That was not right. Takes the way you've been treated seriously. And I think that's a, actually a really beautiful uh, reminder here that the saints have been loved and heard. And their cries have not been lost. And that there is a reckoning. It, it's, we don't want to pray for fire to fall upon people. Or do we? But there's a sense in which those things, those cries, how long, O oh Lord, that psalm is about, get rid of my enemies, look at what they've done to me. These are real human emotions and real human existence. And they're there. And they're taken and they're held. And they're brought into God's work. They're made part of his plan. They're made part of his judgment. It's, it's, it's important that he takes us and who we are seriously. So when we cry out, how long? When we cry out, repent. When we cry out, there's time. We're in good company. And when the world kicks back and says, you can't do that or say that or think that these days. But when it says, we're in good company. Because that's what the saints suffered for. And that's what that's part of the judgment that's coming. I've been watching a little bit this week about the, the um, arguments uh, uh, over some tweeting between Israel Falawa and Billy Vunipola uh, in the rugby world, uh, the rugby union world. And they've decided, whatever whatever their environment is, that they they I, I imagine that they've basically said enough. There's this and there's this and there's this, but actually there's God too. And I want to stand up for someone that actually means something in Paintsville Hill. Because they claimed, they, they cried out that their testimony was that, that there is a God and you need to turn to him because he needs to be taken seriously. And maybe we need to sort of look at their encourage, look at them and be encouraged. But at the same time, they've both lost their, you know, they've, they've been benched and they've lost their contracts. But they've decided to make a sacrifice for God. And somewhere, somewhere in their belief and somewhere in ours should be this reminder that the things we bring before him, the things he gives us to say, the things that we want to say, need to be taken seriously. And that there's a cost. There's a price. There's a price for us. There is a price for Jesus Christ. But there's a cost to those who won't listen. There's time. There's still time to call people 
to God. This passage speaks about God's grace in giving people more time. But we're in fine company, I'd suggest, when we stick our neck out and say, you need to turn to God. You need to turn to God because of what's coming. You need to turn to God because he loves you and he wants you to and wants to have you back. And this judgment is draws that distinction. Because the earth, the rivers, the sea, the fish, the boats, all of those things, the things that the people depended upon. Rome was excessively dependent upon its naval trade. And their destruction of those things meant that they had to rethink what are we about? And this is a call for us to rethink what we're about. We can say, yeah, I can put my trust in these things or I can trust in the God who hears my voice, who hears my prayer, who hears my pain, who hears my hopes. Because the judgment isn't coming on the people who said, I believe and trust that this is good, that God wants me. It's coming on the people who walked away and put their trust in other things. And that's where we are. And when I looked at the example of these two rugby players this week, you know, I thought, yeah, they've made that step. They've said enough. Maybe we should be bold. Maybe we should be able to say, whatever happens, because I believe in him, I will be okay.